Forletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Forletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Okay, welcome to our show uh, called For Lead Investigates. Each Tuesday, we will bring you uh, exciting guests with real life stories. I want to welcome our guests today, and I'm honored and fortunate to have both of them. Our guests uh, work together in uh, the country of Columbia, and I want to welcome DEA or retired DEA agents Chris Feisel and Jerry Solomon. So welcome, guys. Good morning, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Morning, Larry. Thank you. As part of my uh, monologue, you would agree that the success of DEA uh, and their agents really go unheralded. Do you agree with that, Jerry? Absolutely. DEA is is has clearly defined themselves de- defined itself as uh, one of the foremost investigative agencies in the world. You know, attacking. Uh, international drug trafficking at the source, the transit zone, domestically. You know, DEA has always had a a tremendous footprint in the international arena. And and they're just, they remain a fantastic law enforcement agency. And how about you, Chris? Well, I think uh, more recently, Larry, with the introduction of Narcos and some of the other TV shows that are out now, Narco Wars on National Geographic and the Discovery Channel, I think a lot more light is being shown on, on DEA and some of the investigations that DEA has done over the years that people may not have been familiar with. So uh, I think as we progress in time, more of these shows and uh, movies start coming out. It, it really does portray the great work that uh, the men and women of DEA have done, uh, not only over the last few decades, but uh, continue to do so. Yeah, and that seems to be the agreement with all the other former agents and retired guys I've had on the show. And I feel the same way. And that's why we're trying to promote um, this show uh, because there are so many heroes uh, that work at DEA and and a lot of it's gone unnoticed. And I think DEA as an agency had just uh, was not the one to, to step out front and tell them what a great job our agents were doing. And and maybe uh, there was a reason for that. Uh, So Jerry, uh, Chris, you were with DEA for 26 years and Jerry for 28 years. Uh, both of these guys had successful careers and they both rose to, the, uh, rose to the level of DEA management. Both are highly decorated agents, including awards from uh, not only DEA, but the government of Columbia. And uh, both of these gentlemen were on a phenomenally successful Discovery Channel series called Finding Escobar's Millions. Uh, and they they were involved in many other shows uh, as well. So um, let's talk a little bit about your career. We'll start with you, Jerry, about when you first went to Columbia. And uh, well, let's go, let's back it up. Let's talk about your career in DEA and then we'll go into Columbia. Okay, sir. Yeah. So I, uh, I started with the DEA. I recruited out of the Washington, D.C. Uh, field division 
and uh, just spent a few months there after the academy, and, and but ultimately transferred to the Miami field division um, to begin my career as a special agent. I, I, I spent roughly five years assigned to the Miami field division. However, two of those years, I participated in the training and deployment in support of a DEA headquarters program identified as uh, Operation Snowcap. You may recall uh, Snowcap from, from when you were in active service as well. Um, we deployed to uh, Bolivia, Peru, and also Guatemala on uh, drug interdiction, primarily cocaine manufacturing facilities in Peru and Bolivia, and uh, more of a air bridge interdiction operation in Guatemala. So I was able to participate in all of those aspects of that program for, for a couple of years. And then uh, ultimately transferred to the Bogota country office in uh, uh, mid-1993. During my uh, tour in Colombia, I, I initially uh, had, had worked uh, a bit with uh, on the Medellin program. Um, just really after Apollo was still running uh, from the government, he was still causing uh, mayhem in Colombia completely frightened. It was just a, a horrendous time. Uh, Stephen Javier, uh, who you've, you've uh, interviewed on your show, uh, had, had managed the, uh, the Medellin program for the, for the DA office in Colombia. And uh, after Pablo was killed in December 1993, um, Steve Murphy had, had departed country uh, on, on his next assignment. And I had had the opportunity to help Javier wrap up some of the Medellin uh, outstanding, you know, areas of uh, concern in Medellin. And, and that was just a great experience to work with him. And he, he showed me a lot, taught me a lot. And uh, I also participated, you know, just based on my experience in the jungle program, Operation Snowcap, I was able to run our um, similar program in Colombia in cooperation with the uh, Columbia National Police Anti-Narcotics Division. Uh, that had responsibility for, you know, uh, pretty much search and destroy missions, but also criminal investigations surrounding the manufacture of cocaine uh, in and around the, the lower third of Columbia, which, you know, still in a lot of ways is outside the government's control. Uh, so it was a, a quite an interesting time. And then, you know, pretty much after, uh, uh, you know, by, by mid-94 was fully engaged with uh, Chris and some of the other agents that, you know, we were working uh, the Cali Cartel Initiative, which is quite interesting. I'll, I'll pass it to Chris to talk a little bit about his career and, and some of our work over there. So I came on in 1988 uh, while I was in the academy. Uh, my first thought was, you know, in order for me to really learn the job, I need to go to someplace that's, that's busy uh, where I can learn the job very quickly. And Back then in the late 80s, the obvious choice to me seemed to be Miami. So I started my career in mid-1988 in Miami, Florida. Basically worked a lot of transportation and smuggling cases while I was there, specifically on uh, Colombian uh, organized and transnational groups, and again, specifically the Cali and Medellin cartel. So after working in Miami for six years uh, on a number of investigations relating to Columbia, I thought I had a, a pretty decent handle on the Colombian trafficking organizations. And the next logical step for me 
and, and I thought at the time was to, to go to Columbia, to really go to the center of the universe. And, you know, as Jerry and I used to talk about, if, uh, if you really want to be a DEA agent back then, you need to go to, to the source. You need to go to the heart of where everything takes place. And, and that's Columbia. I mean, every drug investigation that DEA touches, even till today, has tentacles coming going back into Columbia. So uh, to me, that seemed like the next next logical step. And since I had a background on, on working, you know, Cali and Medellin cartel targets, uh, once I got to Columbia, it just seemed like the perfect fit. So um, I got to Columbia right in, I got selected in 1993 and got there in, in 1994. So the experience, I think Jerry and I, gained from working in Miami against those Colombian groups really helped us uh, hit the ground running as soon as we got into Colombia. So um, I, I guess after uh, Escobar's demise, um, another group, I guess, was probably competing against him parallel, and that was the Kelly cartel. So talk a little bit how you guys joined together uh, in in Colombia and then your focus on, on the Kelly group. Jerry? So it was just an ultimate, I mean, the Cali car, cartel had always been there. In fact, they had been engaged with Pablo Escobar for some time. And then, you know, it eventually, you know, dissipated a bit, that relationship, and, and they became adversaries. But, you know, lo and behold, we, we could only expect that, uh, you know, once Escobar was wrapped up, and uh, what a fantastic uh, piece of work the Colombian National Police, you know, did over time to get to that point, U.S. and Colombian resources were obviously going to be aimed at Cali, and and they were, and and fortunately, Chris and I were among the small team of uh, investigators that were, um, you know, selected to target and uh, ultimately lead to the arrest of the leaders of the Cali cartel, Miguel and Hilberto Rodriguez Orojuela. It was a just a fantastic opportunity for us to be in, engaged in that kind of a an investigation, but more so the opportunity to work with just some fantastic Colombian authorities that uh, were with us the entire time. What were some of the challenges uh, working with the uh, CMP, the Colombian National Police? Issues of corruption or leaking of information, anything like that? There was uh, certainly uh, elements of corruption. We we had been exposed to it. We we had had uh, occasions where, um, uh, you know, we had we had initially based at a uh, Colombian National Police uh, Task Force, a blockaded Busqueda, similar to what they had in uh, Medellin. Uh, the blockade was established to target the uh, upper echelon of the Cali cartel, similar to as it did. Uh, in, in the Medellin area of responsibility in the state of Antioquia. We were based there and, you know, eventually we had, you know, developed sources and, and, and all that sort of thing. We were exposed uh, very early on during our uh, work in Cali to corruption. We had the opportunity to develop some very, very effective sources. Uh, we can enlighten you more on that, but, you know, at the point, you know, back then they were actually using cassette tapes still, you know, in the right. in the mid nineties, mm -hmm. we had some very effective, um, professional sources that, uh, were giving us cassette tapes of us talking on the phone. So right. that, uh, you know, that, that was an eye opener for us, Chris, I think you remember when, when that was occurring for us. 
Yeah, no, without a doubt. And just to kind of set the stage for you, Larry, so you you can get the background and, and paint this picture that, you know, from the early 90s, you know, once once Pablo was on the run and the government really declared war on Escobar, every resource of the United States government and the Colombian government was focused on taking down Pablo and destroying the remnants of the Medellin cartel. That being said, and this is a lesson, a good lesson in, 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 for law enforcement is that you can never put all your resources in one basket. You cannot just target one organization and leave, you know, the rest of the country of Colombia alone, so to say. And that over those years, when every resource was dedicated to Medellin and Pablo, the Cali cartel was quietly expanding the organization, you know, sending out, you know, hundreds of tons of cocaine every year, corrupting every government official that they possibly could, building their intelligence infrastructure. So that once Pablo went down and we started to really focus on Cali, we were way behind the eight ball. The Cali cartel had such a huge advantage over us at that point. We were starting from zero and they were at 100. And it was extremely challenging just to to get into Cali, to do any kind of work. We were constantly surveilled by you know, corrupt elements of the police, the military, DOS, you know, cartel uh, associates. Uh, the corruption uh, was was terrible, to be honest with you. Um, we every operation that we initially went out on when we first started in 1994, uh, the cartel knew we were coming before we even left the police base or the military base. So it was it was extremely challenging. Uh, we did not have a lot of success early on. And because of the troubles and the surveillance that was on us and the corruption, we got to the point where we almost had to do things unilaterally. And we really needed to change how we were conducting operations in, in Colombia and Cali specifically. So we sat around and basically discussed, Jerry, I and and Dave Mitchell, that the only way that we were going to be able to bring down the cartel, which is what we were sent to Columbia to do, was to get some sources on the inside, to get people who had real-time actionable intelligence. And we had to do a lot of that work and the prep work and the surveillances and the planning unilaterally because we just could not take the chance of compromising our sources with anybody in the in the in the Colombian government, so it was very stressful. It was very challenging. Uh, the conditions were very demanding, and uh, it was tough. It, it took us, you know, well over a year on the ground, a year and a half, to really be able to get inside and penetrate the cartel and make make uh, substantial progress. I guess when you compare them to Escobar. Uh, it seems to me that the Kelly group was a lot more sophisticated in their operations. Is that is that pretty accurate? Here's the deal. The Medellin cartel was extremely innovative in the early days of wholesale cocaine smuggling. They pretty much invented it initially with the whole, you know, air bridge to the Bahamas that Carlos later set up and, you know, Norman's Key and all that. 
you know, they, they really, um, they, they were extremely innovative in, in how they, you know, developed that whole wholesale transportation network. Cali w was no different in their own regard. They just preferred to do it a little differently. They, they would, you know, send it in merchandise and uh, large, you know, uh, containerized cargo shipments and so forth. But uh, so to give due credit to the Medellin cartel, they were very innovative in their own right. However, Cali, as Chris said, you know, they had the opportunity when the focus was completely on Medellin, Pablo Escobar, the Medellin cartel. Um, they, they developed, I mean, you would not believe the, the sophistication of the intelligence network they developed. I mean, in fact, they, at one point, you know, our, our collective team of uh, investigative team, Columbia and the United States, you know, there was a, a huge computer system that was seized and we were able to arrange to have, you know, elements of DEA headquarters conduct some of the analysis of that. And I mean, they owned the telephone company. They owned, you know, the taxicab network in Cali. They knew what was going on in every corner of Cali. It was just really remarkable. And we saw it firsthand with our own eyes. You know, as Chris mentioned, it was just a year and a half really to get our bearings to the point where we knew we could move forward and, and really cause some... Uh, conflict for these guys but ultimately we were able to persevere we did develop initially we developed a a very credible source that we vetted and you know independently verified uh a lot of the information that <clears throat> he was giving us concerning gilberto rodriguez Rojuela's whereabouts and certainly he was you know they the manhunt was on at this point so you know they were they were hiding um, they, they were laying low and, uh, uh, we were able to independently corroborate, uh, the intelligence and, uh, with the, with the help of some Colombian authorities. There were some distinct differences between the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel. And one of the main, one of the main distinctions was, is the, the Medellin cartel's weapon of choice was, you know, violence, threats, intimidation, murders. Uh, I think everyone's aware of all the high-profile murders and assassinations and, and car bombs and everything that the Medellin did, that Medellin did during that time. You know, Cali's weapon of choice was the bribe. They were able to corrupt um, government officials at all different levels. And in fact, they, they openly brag about being able to elect the president of Colombia, Ernesto Samper, in 1994. And along with that corruption and the amounts of money that they had, they were able to you know, establish these very sophisticated phone trunking and, and relay systems that were you know, untappable. They controlled the phone company that meant that they were able to tap and to listen to phones of people who, who were trying to target them, i.e. the DEA, the CIA, potential informants, um, their intelligence network, their security network that they had was, was incredible. And they were often referred to by the CIA as the Cali KGB. They were that advanced and that sophisticated, which made our job on the ground much, much more difficult and to elaborate on the computer that Jerry was talking about, in, in 1994, we did a raid on a, a cartel communication center and seized this computer. And it was an IBM AS 
400 mainframe computer. And at that time in 1994, it cost well over a million dollars. And this is something that you would, you know, you would see on TV that you would expect to see in NASA or somewhere because of how advanced and sophisticated it was and contained within the computer after, you know, DEA forensic specialists took them about three weeks to crack it. They found, you know, uh, license plate information, uh, flight records. They were monitoring every aircraft uh, with an N number of U.S. aircraft that would depart Bogota and land in Cali. They were able to run a sophisticated crisscross telephone system where anybody that they suspected of cooperating against them, they would be able to run their telephone numbers. And if there were calls to, to Medellin or to the U.S. Embassy, uh, those people were were never seen again. So countless numbers of people were were executed or were disappeared or thrown into the Cauca River because of that. So just being able to penetrate that intelligence and security network was extremely difficult. And unless you had somebody on the inside that can give you that information, and, and we learned all of this, you know, once we did meet some of the very, very high level assets that we recruited, uh, it started to level the playing field. So once we had recruited those people, we knew what we were up against and we were able to plan accordingly, but uh, it was extremely challenging. Yeah, I, I think one of the projections that maybe some of the news media at one time try to look at the Cali cartel as the Ivy League of drug traffickers when in fact they were just as violent as, uh, as, as Escobar was. They were just as violent. However, they were just quietly violent. People would disappear off the face of the earth at the hands of the Cali cartel. Like Chris said, you dump them into the Cauca River. At one point, uh, our senior leadership at DEA Bogota, in cooperation with the ambassador, the State Department, and Colombian authorities, they, they'd actually contemplated dredging the Cauca River uh, a certain piece of the Calca River in an effort to try to recover some of the bodies we suspected were in there. Um, due to some other very intense requirements, you know, that operation uh, was not, you know, did not develop. But, uh, you know, we, we knew, uh, we, we became familiar with some of the people that had disappeared only because they were suspected of cooperating with U.S. authorities. And, and they weren't cooperating with U.S. authorities, but they they did disappear in an abundance of caution on the part of the Cali cartel. Just, uh, uh, you know, and, and I think as young agents, Chris and I, Dave, the, you know, the other uh, the other folks that, that helped us, you know, we never really uh, it didn't matter the magnitude of these guys at the time. It was our objective to go after them. And and that was. Uh, you know, that was the requirement we, we were undertaking. And, and it was just a fantastic time in DEA's history, notwithstanding the fact that ever since, I mean, DEA has continued to do just some amazing work. Even if you take into account the last year of the pandemic worldwide, um, it's easy to track a lot of these things. DEA has just done some phenomenal work around the world. But back to Cali, um, yeah, it became a part, it became a point where we didn't feel safe working out of the bloque of the Busquera in Cali, the, the, the police, you know, slash military base. And we ultimately secured our own safe house. 
and we had been using safe houses um, at that point that were, uh, you know, sponsored by some other agencies and, and working with some of their uh, teams that, that, you know, there's a term vetted unit you may have heard of. And, and there are vetted units that, that have been created in, in, in DEA worldwide. And Chris and I were fortunate to actually help design and implement and, and create the first team in Columbia. It was staffed by Columbia National Police officers and, and, and senior officers. Uh, and um, we actually took the first team to Quantico and had them trained. And uh, um, I can tell you, we were very proud of the work that they did as well as the other folks that we'd worked with. And, and ultimately, years later, the, uh, the head of that unit at the time, back in the mid-90s, you know, ultimately retired a few years ago as the uh, director general of the Columbia National Police. So we're, we're quite proud of uh, General Nieto's accomplishments. And, uh, and uh, Chris, if you want to speak a little bit more about our experience in Cali, but oh, I, if I could just offer one thing about these, you know, we, we became very familiar with these Colettas that Cali was creating and designing. They had pretty much engineers designing these secret hiding places in, in single family homes and apartments. And, you know, we, we've had our, we had our fair share of that all along the way, participating in these raids with the Columbia National Police. And it was just an incredible, um, I mean, these things were masterpieces. And, and Chris, I'd like to pass it to you if you'd like to describe maybe the Santa Rita and some of the other ones we encountered, including the uh, Buenos Aires. Yeah, let, let me go back and, and just tell a very quick anecdotal story about we were talking about the violence and the difference between Cali and Medellin. And, and Jerry, you touched on a good point that um, Medellin was very high profile violence. They wanted people to see, you know, the murders and the, the bodies in the street. Cali was the exact opposite. They learned, you know, from Medellin's era that to, you know, go about your business quietly. You don't bring attention to yourself. And if you do have to kill people, well, you know, kill them quietly and make them disappear. So, you know, at that time in the early 90s to mid 90s, Cali was responsible for 80 to 85 percent of the cocaine that reached U.S. soil and 90 percent of the cocaine worldwide. So these guys basically had a monopoly on the entire cocaine industry from from the early 90s to, to mid 19 to 1995 when they were taken down. But in order to run that type of organization, you know, loyalty was demanded. So uh, they had suspected one person of cooperating. And he actually was not cooperating, but he had lost two large shipments of cocaine and the Cali leaders were not satisfied with his explanation. So what they did to that point is they lured him to a finca outside of Cali in, in Palmira, which was a finca owned by Pacho Herrera called the Desert, the Desierto. And they lured this guy there that it was Miguel's birthday. Miguel Rodriguez Oruela, one of the leaders of the Cali cartel, his birthday. So he shows up with, with a woman. And, of course, once he shows up, he realizes pretty quickly that there is no birthday party. And him and a girl and one or two other people are brutally tortured and killed. Now, this guy who was suspected of cooperating had some family ties that were, you know, very well placed in another country in the government. So 
this is a guy that you just cannot make him disappear without people asking questions, without people coming to investigate. So what they did after they were, again, brutally tortured and killed, their bodies were, were wrapped up in, in plastic and duct tape. They were taken to the Kalka River, thrown off the bridge. Their bodies were, you know, their stomachs were cut open. They were filled up with rocks so that the bodies wouldn't float. They were thrown into the river and they burned all of their belongings except for their passports. So the next day or two days later, the Cali cartel recruited two operatives who looked very similar to this individual and his girlfriend. And they actually, because of the corruption that they had, traveled from Cali on their real passports to Costa Rica. So once people started to inquire, hey, what, what happened to these people? They came to Cali. We know that. The cartel very conveniently through their corrupt officials said, well, look, we checked immigration in Colombia. These people left two days later on their passport and they arrived in Costa Rica. So if anything happened to them, it must have happened in Costa Rica. So just a very, you know, an example of how the cartel was able to disappear mm -hmm. people and basically leave no trace. It's the, it was the perfect crime. You guys really focused on the uh, Orwella brothers and and trying to, to take them down. So what uh, and how did you guys eventually uh, disrupt them and sort of then get these guys indicted? So earlier I had mentioned we had developed, um, you know, our initiative was to develop sources close enough to the hierarchy of the cartel that, that they would be effective for us. And uh, we did. We, we, we developed a source. Um, Ruben Prieto, who was our supervisor at the time, he's, he's since passed away. And, um, but uh, he, he was our supervisor. So in, in cooperation with, with Ruben, uh, we were able to develop a... Um, a source that had a lead on Gilberto Rodriguez Orjuela's executive assistant, horse holder, if you will, um, and and uh, and and this this person did not live with Gilberto, but but he would see him pretty much on a daily basis, and he would take care of all of his affairs while he was in hiding, and um, using the resources of another um, vetted team. Um, that were affiliated with the uh, Colombian Navy, uh, as well as the police, we were able to establish, um, we were able to identify an apartment complex where this, this gentleman lived. This gentleman, gentleman went by the name of Flacco, the skinny guy. And we were able to establish um, a, a, a design and investigation um, to, to determine, you know, how this guy, uh, you know, traveled. We we understood from the source that he would he would walk. He would take taxi cabs. He would jump on buses. He would walk, um, and and that's exactly the experience we had trying to surveil this guy over the course of a week. We had a, a team set up um, in this. You know, and there's probably ultimately it was a five mile area that he had to travel, transit, if you will, to get to Hilberto. So we um, 
oftentimes we would set up surveillance and, and, you know, say at five thirty six in the morning and, and hope that this, you know, this guy generally, you know, became, you know, started to, to move around 7 AM. And, uh, you know, at the, at the beginning stages of this, you know, large surveillance operation, we, we, because we didn't know the footprint of this guy, we didn't know actually how, how complex his travel and how much counter surveillance uh, techniques he would he would employ. We would often lose him in two minutes. So what did that mean for our team? It mean it meant wrapping up a surveillance operation for that day, and and putting ourselves away in a safe house for the next twenty four hours to try it again. And the next day we might get ten minutes with him. And, and he would do just like we understood. He would walk, he would take a cab, he would jump on a bus, he would dip into a, a business, uh, you know, a, a business uh, building, an office building. Uh, he would come out another door of the office building, jump back on a bus. Uh, it was just incredible. And uh, so we might take him for 10 minutes the next day. And then we'd have to regroup, stash everybody away in safe houses, do it all again the next day. We did this over the course of a week. We had a couple of female uh, officers that were with us that, um, you know, we took them so far. We took them pretty much all the way. Uh, what do you think, Krista, the last couple of days of their surveillance operation? We, we took them to this area where there was like a, a park where people would go and exercise and walk and so forth. So we, we um, had the female officers, you know, dress up in gym shorts and, you know, T-shirts and tennis shoes and so forth. And there was a long, a, a very high... Um, uh, stairway that went up to another residential area at the top of this hill. And people would walk up those stairs and, you know, jog up those stairs. And, you know, it was an exercise, part of the exercise as well that people would implement, you know, in their daily routines. Well, ultimately on the last day, the, uh, the female officers were able to, we were able to follow this guy all the way to, to this park in Cali. And then they, they followed him up, up the stairs only to encounter about four townhomes at the top of the hill. They weren't sure exactly when they were, they weren't sure exactly the one he was in, but they were later able to determine that it had to be, you know, one particular one of those four, for instance. And, and, and that's how we orchestrated the raid that ultimately caught Hilberto. We um, communicated with our senior leadership in Bogota. We communicated with the Columbia National Police uh, Director General, uh, Rosso Jose Serrano, and 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 we uh, we mounted an operation. I'd like Chris to talk a little bit about that operation because he was actually on the ground. Dave and I ended up going on a helicopter, only to determine later that we had nowhere to land. So we pretty much circled the uh, the house during the op. But I'd like to pass it to Chris. He could give you a little bit more perspective on the ground. It's quite fun. Well, I mean, as as we spoke about earlier, that. Uh... Jerry, I, and Dave Mitchell realized very quickly that the only way that we were going to be able to get these guys was to recruit, you know, high-level assets, people who were on the inside who had real-time actionable intelligence. And uh, just to pick up with that, um, so once Hilberto goes into, or once Flacco goes into this row of townhouses, we're not exactly sure which one he goes into. But there's only five townhouses on the street, so we knew it had to be one of them. So the decision is made to raid all five of them at the same time. So with the specialized units that we brought from Bogota as well as the Bloque, 
we basically rate all five houses at the same time. And once we're going through the houses, one of the townhouses had Flacco inside. As Jerry uh, relayed, uh, related that we followed Flacco to that location, we then assumed that that was the location where Hilberto was at. So everybody kind of leaves the other townhouses. Everybody goes into the target townhouse where Flacco is, and we start tearing up the house, uh, leaving no stone unturned. And during the process of the search, we're able to find, actually Ruben Prieto is able to find like a, a wall unit that is kind of backed into the wall, but doesn't look just right. It's not flush against the wall. It's kind of sticking out, obviously, because Hilberto had to get in there in a hurry. So several people are able to kind of pull on this wall unit and realize that it's loose. It's not firmly attached to the wall. So this little wall unit comes out, and there's a, a Coletta, as Jerry said earlier, a hidden hiding space back there. And Hilberto is basically hiding in there with a, with a pistol in each hand and, and relates the famous words, you know, don't shoot, I'm a man of peace. So Hilberto is, is then arrested, and that begins the rapid and dramatic downfall of the cartel. So Hilberto is arrested on June the 9th, 1995. So then, again, as it's pretty well portrayed in, in Narcos Season 3, we are able to, after a long, extensive, you know, we're doing our homework, we are able to recruit Jorge Salcedo who is the head of security for Miguel Rodriguez and the Cali cartel at this time. So we're able to meet with him covertly uh, in an area about an hour outside of, of Cali. And when we first talked to him on the phone, he basically tells us, you know, come alone and I don't want to see any Colombians. And when we go meet him, we're like, look, we're, you know, we're not going to come and, and meet you in the middle of nowhere an hour outside of Cali. You're, you're a counterintelligence officer for the cartel. You're the head of security. You know, it could be a trap. So a lot of things are going through our mind. But uh, we take a calculated risk because we think that he really does want to do the right thing. And we sit down with him. And for the three hours that we sat with him the first day, he provided us, you know, more insight and intelligence into the cartel that Jerry, I, and Dave Mitchell had gained for a year and a half that we were on the ground. So... We really had a good understanding now about their intelligence network, their security network, uh, the things that Miguel preferred, and how we were able, how we could launch an operation to to grab Miguel Rodriguez, who at this point in time was the head of the Cali cartel and really the day-to-day -day manager of operations that were going on. So, by doing unilateral surveillance, you know, Jerry, Dave, and uh, myself we were able to identify an apartment based on a lot of the information that Jorge Salcedo was giving us. The Miguel is in an area called Santa Rita, which is by the zoo downtown Columbia. And we're, we're able to launch an operation there. And it's, if you've seen Narco season three, it turns out to be a failure. We're not able to locate Miguel Rodriguez 
um, we end up drilling into into the wall, smashing, you know, trying to break down the wall where we know he's hiding. And we are basically detained and arrested and thrown out of the apartment by a corrupt prosecutor. And at that point in time, our our raid, our first attempted raid to arrest Miguel Rodriguez ends in disaster and our sources possibly on the block to be killed. So eventually you guys had both of these, the brothers in custody. Now, were they indicted in the United States? There were multiple indictments against all of the four leaders, Miguel Rodriguez, Alberto Rodriguez, Jose Santa Cruz, and Pacho Herrera. They were all, again, indicted in multiple uh, judicial districts in the United States. The problem, however, was there is no extradition uh, of Colombian citizens to the United States at that point in time. So anything that we did to arrest the leaders of the Cali cartel were on local Colombian charges of drug trafficking and illicit enrichment and money laundering. So there was no possibility at that time to have these guys extradited. So, yes, there were multiple indictments on all of them. You know, uh, Chris and Larry, if we could sort of uh, go back to the Santa Rita for just a moment. Um, The raid was not a complete loss. It was a loss in the sense that we didn't get Miguel. And it was a front page story in the news the next day in the the, the daily newspapers in Colombia with a picture of the, the, the bathroom vanity where there was a trap door underneath in the, the back wall of a vanity. In other words, you have your sink in your guest bathroom. And again, just for context, this was a three-bedroom apartment that we spent 12 hours in looking for him, and we couldn't find him. <laughs> but uh, ultimately, he was, uh, he was in an air shaft that, that ran the whole length of the building to the roof um, that they had built out behind the wall of this vanity in a guest bathroom. And he accessed it. If you go underneath the vanity, you open the two cabinet doors and you cr- crawl in there under the plumbing and everything. And then you push this door in, you access this air shaft, and that's where he was. And, uh, you know, we, we, we've always sort of said that the, the, the drill in our raid bag, you know, probably, and maybe we hit him in the leg or something because there was blood in there <laughs> the next day. But it was a huge story because, you know, the manhunt was on. Everybody in Columbia knew it. Uh, anybody in the international community that was following knew it. Um, But it wasn't a complete loss because during the course of the search operation in that apartment, we were able to identify a, uh, one of the bedrooms was set up as an office and there was a big desk, big wooden brown desk. And um, uh, we, we were able to, we smashed open the top of that desk. It opened up like a, a, a hood of a car. It had a latch on it and everything. But, but ultimately, we lifted it up and smashed the top off of it. And, and it was quiet enough, and it was late enough in the search. In other words, this is probably nine hours or so in um, you know, to the search. So by this time, even the crooked prosecutor that was there on the site um, was, was bored. They were watching soccer in the living room. So we were able to get this desk open and lo and behold, in the back of the desk was a Coletta, one of these secret hiding places with a cache of ledgers, business records, and a couple of laptops. So what we did, we had some cohorts that were actually stashed outside the apartment. Um, uh, 
that, that we were able to smuggle these documents through a window in that office, you know, uh, bedroom space. We smuggled those documents in the, in the laptops and, and had those flown while we were still searching. They, we had them dispatched back to Bogota for security purposes and you know, keep them safe and safeguard them. It was an incredible cachet, and it ultimately put Fernando Botero Jr., the son of the world-renowned um, painter and very famous artist from Colombia. He was, at the time, he was the uh, Minister of Defense for Colombia, for, uh, for President Samper, who, uh, you know, over time, it was clearly determined that the Cali cartel contributed $6 million to his presidential campaign and essentially bought the presidency at the time. But these, there was a sufficient evidence in this cache of documents and laptops to put Fernando Botero in jail in Colombia. So it wasn't a full loss, but we were still on the hunt for Miguel. We were concerned for Salcedo's safety and well-being now and that of his family because we thought he was going to get dead really quick. To pick up on that, um, Miguel, after, after we're thrown out of, uh, escorted out of the building by Colombian officials, Later that evening, Salcedo, again, you know, working for the cartel as a head of security, goes back into the apartment with a corrupt Colombian National Police captain who Jerry and I worked and Dave Mitchell worked with extensively. And they break him out of the Coleta and smuggle him into a new uh, safe house in the Normandia Wanabu area of Cali. So uh, Salcedo is privy to the area of the city that Miguel is now hiding in. So he's able to draw us a map and take photographs of a couple of target buildings. And this is about two weeks later. So as we are sitting there doing unilateral surveillance at night from probably nine o'clock at night until three or four in the morning, we are able to determine one apartment, which we think is suspect where Miguel is currently hiding it. And after a few checks on the property, we realize it's it's registered to a paramour of Miguel, which was a good indication that he may be there. And then Salcedo gives us two extremely key pieces of information. One is that uh, Miguel had swapped out uh, his personal assistant, so he had a new assistant with him. Uh, by the name of Mateo. And he also told us that uh, because they weren't exactly sure as to how DEA and the Colombian National Police were able to get to the first building in Santa Rita, he swapped out his domestic employees, his mates. And Salcedo told us that they had replaced them with two African, Afro-Colombian maids from Buenaventura. So one night while we're all sitting there doing surveillance at about midnight, we're able to see a light come on in the kitchen and through binoculars, we're able to see two Afro-Colombian domestic employees in the kitchen, like cooking and washing dishes. So based on that observation and the intelligence that we did to determine that the apartment was registered to a paramour of Miguel, we felt very, very confident that Miguel Rodriguez was hiding on the 10th floor of a building called Hacienda Buenos Aires. And we then mobilized uh, a raid. We had people brought over land from Colombia. They were Navy Special Forces, Navy SEALs, Colombian Navy SEALs. And we were able to 
launch a pretty, in all fairness, I would say dramatic pre-dawn raid, you know, down a mountain, people got hung up there. We had a very limited people who were able to reach the door. And when we knocked the door down to get in, the first person we observed was Miguel's new assistant that Salcedo told us they had swapped out. So we immediately knew we were in the right place. And, you know, a short time later, one of the Colombian Navy SEALs was in the master bedroom. Jerry and I were, were right outside the master bedroom. He reaches into this extremely sophisticated hidden compartment as Miguel's attempting to close the door and hide. And he grabs him by the arm and basically says, I got him, I got him. And they bring Miguel Rodriguez out. And on August 6th, you know, Miguel, the de facto leader of the Kelly cartel, was arrested in 1995. I'd like to just back up to one second, Larry, if I could, on, on Chris's point, you know, when we knocked down the door. At the time in Colombia, the authorities were not allowed to knock down doors. Um, as we do here in the U.S., after we knock and announce, if they don't answer the door, you can smash the door in and proceed with your search, arrest operation, you know, whatever the case may be. We actually, in, in advance of this particular operation and having, having had difficulty with the element of surprise because of the rules and and the laws in Colombia, uh, little by little, and we became more knowledgeable about these these coletas, the secret hiding places, and so forth. We actually had a meeting with the attorney general in Colombia, and and we asked him. And and I was, I was in the meeting. I, I think Chris was at the meeting as well. Um, don't remember who else was it. You know, we had some supervisors with us, obviously, but uh, we explained to him that what was partially um, disrupting our operations was the element of surprise. He authorized us to be able to smash the doors down. And uh, we always carried a sledgehammer with us after that. And certainly at the, at the time of the Buenos Aires raid, and, and Chris mentioned, there was only a handful of us that were able to make it. We ran up the stairs to the 10th floor because, you know, there was... A cliff that that some of the folks weren't able to navigate a hill, a hillside, and and just for a variety of reasons, there was ended up being four or five of us at the top of the stairs. Chris and I, and and two or three Colombian officers, and uh, but from this Navy SEAL team, and uh, we, you know they we, we gave them the hammer, and and they because they just were, I. I partially because they just weren't used to smashing doors down. So you know, it, it took a couple of whacks, you know, but, uh, and, and as soon as we got in, that was the element of surprise we had been hoping for. And it, it, it really, it really worked. Had we had to knock and wait for them to open the door, Miguel would have disappeared in that Coletta. We would have spent a whole day there and would have still missed them. This thing was like a California closet um, built into his, uh, a very large master bedroom, uh, you know, walk-in closet shelves and cabinets and all this and that and you pull this large five drawer cabinet out of the wall and behind that wall and we have pictures of it you could you could access it um you, you push this four inch solid concrete door in it's it's bolted it's cut out of the concrete you know air shaft but it's bolted back together with an iron two iron or three iron hinges and it swings inward and it's just enough room to sit or stand uh, on a little stool or, or standing up, there was an air conditioner vent relayed to it. There was an oxygen tank in there. There was water and peanuts. And he would have disappeared in there. We would have never found him. Do you agree, Chris? 
Absolutely. I mean, we remember we stood there in amazement looking at that Coletta, and we even made the statement that, you know, had he gained access to that and those drawers were put back in, we would have never, we'd still be there until this day, 26 years later, looking for him. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, extremely sophisticated. And, and you're right, Jerry. I mean, there were several keys to that operation, but one of them most certainly was by Attorney General Valdivieso granting us permission to to knock the door down. And his exact words during that meeting were, this is an exception to the rule, um, which at that point I thought was pretty pretty brave of him to, to allow us to do that, considering, you know, the strength and the power that the cartel yielded uh, throughout the Colombian government. So uh, he definitely gets props for that. And it was certainly a key to uh, culminating that operation. Now, how long did the brothers uh, stay incarcerated in Colombia? Uh, was there something being worked out on the extradition between the United States and the Colombian government? Larry, it was essentially 10 years they remained incarcerated in Colombia. And, okay. and over that time, DEA and in cooperation with Colombian authorities were able to determine that uh, uh, the Rodriguez Orjuela brothers were still managing the day-to-day -day operations of the Cali cartel from the confines of prison. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, extradition had been re-engaged in Colombia. U.S. authorities were able to indict the brothers um, on new charges that that post-dated, you know, um, the, the new extradition treaty that 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 had. Uh, that had been reactivated. And uh, so uh, in 2005, 2006, uh, respectively, they were, they were extradited. And they're, they're both currently incarcerated. Um, one's in North Carolina, one's in South Carolina in federal prisons for 30 years. Yeah, the, the Rodriguez Weyler brothers were arrested in the summer of 1995. So at that point in time, there was no extradition of Colombian citizens to the United States. In there was a law passed in Colombia stating that any crimes committed after December 17th of 1997 were now eligible and subject to extradition to the United States. So as a result of that, as Jerry expounded upon, the both of the Rodriguez brothers continued to traffic from jail after their 1995 arrest. New charges and new indictments were able to come down against them and uh, in December of 2004, Gilberto Rodriguez is extradited to the United States. In March of 2005, Miguel Rodriguez is extradited to the United States. They are both, they both plead guilty. They're sentenced to 30 years in prison and they agree to each forfeit over $1 billion with a B. So the forfeiture clause on their indictment was $2.1 billion. And till this day, they still remain incarcerated in, in U.S. prison. As we're coming to a, to a, to a close, I know that, uh, as I mentioned early on, um, you guys were involved in the uh, Discovery Channel's uh, uh, episodes. And uh, just bring us up to date where you're at right now on the current uh, Discovery Channel and what's called the narco wars. 
So earlier in 2020, we uh, we worked with Wall-to-Wall uh, -Wall Productions and uh, the uh, National Geographic uh, Network to um, contribute to a couple of episodes of a 10-part series, documentary series that they um, created called Narco Wars. Chris and I are featured in uh, episode 7 and episode 10, which actually aired last night, but it's available on demand and, and also on Amazon Prime. Uh, in addition to that, we did do the uh, the six-part series with uh, season two of Fighting Ex Escobar's Millions, and that was uh, in cooperation with Blackfin Productions and the Discovery Channel. And then uh, a couple of years ago, we also contributed to a Netflix series, um, uh, season one, episode two of the uh, the series called uh, Drug Lords. And, you know, we've enjoyed that, and, and we continue to avail ourselves to uh, consult on those kind of projects and um you know, Chris has a fantastic script that he's created, and and uh, and uh, we're you know we're consulting and and uh, privately and and also uh, with some public agencies from time to time, and uh, really just enjoying ourselves and reflecting on just a wonderful career we had with DEA, and we're grateful for that career. Uh, one of the things I was fortunate enough to work on too with Netflix was Narco season three of Columbia, which was focused on the Cali cartel and the takedown of the Cali cartel. And a lot of what you see in Narco season three was based off the book at the devil's table by William Rempel, where it outlines, you know, a lot of what we spoke about here today, as well as Jorge Salcedo, you know, really the, the one person most responsible for bringing down the cartel and his story. So that was uh, an extremely, fun opportunity for me to work with the great people at Netflix on, on Narco season three. So, um, yeah, as Jerry said, we just continue to try to get the story about, out about the great work that DEA has done, uh, not only in Columbia, but, uh, but elsewhere. Well, listen, guys, I thank you for taking the time to share your stories. Uh, very interesting. And, uh, it shows the dedication of what DEA does, uh, in the, in the international world of drug trafficking. So thanks once again. Thank you, Larry. We appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Larry. It's our pleasure. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to fcisllc.com.